Episode 25 with three-time Olympic fencer Daryl Homer. Welcome to the Institute of Black Imagination. I'm your host, Dario Kalmus, an artist, writer, brand consultant, and generally curious fellow. And each week we bring you a conversation from the pool of black genius to inspire, engage, and help you unleash your own imagination. Today's episode is with fencer and three-time Olympian, Daryl Homer. Hailing from the U.S. Virgin Islands, Daryl, along with his mother and sister, relocated to the Gun Hill section of the Bronx when he was five. His interest in fencing began at an early age after encountering the word fencing in a pictorial dictionary that his mother gave him. Inspired, he begged his mother to begin lessons, but it wasn't until a chance encounter with an advertisement featuring two black fencers did Daryl's mother finally cave in to her son's growing obsession. And so, at the ripe old age of 11, Daryl was enrolled at the Peter Westbrook Foundation, an organization founded by its namesake, Peter Westbrook, who took home the bronze in fencing in the 1984 Olympics. Quickly seeing his potential, Daryl was placed on the Olympic track just one year later, and his path to the Games began. By the age of 17, he'd already medaled at the Cadet World Fencing Championships, later taking home gold in seven Pan American Championships, and also competing in the 2012 Olympics in London, the 2016 Olympics in Rio de Janeiro, and most recently, the 2021 Olympics in Tokyo. At the Rio Games, Daryl took home the silver medal in men's individual saber fencing, surpassing his mentor, Peter Westbrook, and thereby making him the highest medaled Olympic fencer in American history. In today's episode, we discuss Daryl's early beginnings in the Bronx, what it takes to have a champion mindset, how to recover from failure, and the power of imagination and visualization to overcome obstacles. This is such a powerful episode as we chart the sheer will and tenacity needed to accomplish big dreams. I learned so much and I'm sure you will too. Be sure to subscribe wherever you receive your podcasts and leave us a review over on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to hear your thoughts. And be sure to follow us over on Instagram over at Black Imagination. And now I invite you to pull out your notepads. Daryl's about to drop some wisdom. Daryl, Daryl Homer, um, so super excited to have you here on the podcast, the Institute of Black Imagination, um, you know, Olympian, American hero, um, and just excited to dive into what it takes, right? What it takes to become and to become like at a high, high, high level. Um, so welcome, Mr. Homer. I appreciate you. I appreciate you for having me today. So, so to start, like, let's start at the beginning. Like, what is your superhero origin story? Like, who who is Daryl Homer? How did Daryl come to be? Yeah, um, you know, I am uh, a young boy, right at heart, right. I um, I found something I was really, really passionate about at a really young age. I had a lot of fun doing it. 
and had a lot of incredible mentors and role models um, and got a ton of support. And that kind of allowed me to become who I am today. Um, so very, very grateful. Um, yeah, very grateful is what I would say. Yeah. And, and so, so you're from the Bronx, correct? Yeah. So I grew up in the Bronx. Yeah. I'm originally from the U S Virgin Islands, St. Thomas. Um, my mother and father moved, um, separately to the States, um, in their early or late, like young, young adulthood. Like, you know, my mom probably moved up to the States at 19 or 20. Um, and, um, maybe, yeah, something like that. And, um, have lived here since. And it was just you and your mom up in the Bronx, correct? My mother, my sister, and I, correct, yeah. Ah, dope, 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 dope. And so, like, kind of set the stage, like, what's happening? So you're up in the Bronx, you know, you're five, right? You've moved from the Virgin Islands at five. Um, And then, like, what happens? Like, what, like, your mother gives you a book and something happens, (laughs) You know, I think at that time, the children's dictionary had a ton of pictures of animals in it. So I just read through it kind of all the time to just see what these different animals that I was collecting cards looked like and stuff like that, too. Right. So um, eventually I came across the word fencing and I saw the guy in the white outfit, the silver mask and on guard position. And I was like, this looks really, really cool. So I ran to my mom and said, hey, I really want to try this out. And she kind of gave me this look like, mm, right. <laughs> um, and, you know, I kind of, you're a kid, so it's like, whatever, you're trying something new every week. But um, I, um, it kept popping up. So I saw the parent trap scene with Mary-Kate and Ashley. And then, you know, The Mask of Zorro was one of my favorite movies growing up um, with Antonio Banderas. And then obviously, like, the Ninja Turtles and stuff like that. So, like, you know, eventually, I think I was, like, 10 or 11, we were watching television together. Um, and we saw an ad for two African-American men fencing for a New York City yellow cab super contextual given that I lived in the city and everything like that. And um, I was like, mom, remember I wanted to do that? And she was like, okay, I'll look for it. I think seeing two black men doing it kind of spurred, a, spurred something in her. And she looked in the yellow pages and found a club. And I started probably a couple of weeks later. You know, what I love about this story is one, it speaks to, you know, the relationship of family, right? Like how important family is um, and just how important it is for, you know, us all to to share information, to, even if we don't think it's anything special, like, like a dictionary, right? Like it's just, oh yeah, here's this. Um, but what I also love is like your destiny was actually in that book. Yeah, yeah. And 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 not only that, but like your destiny was actually in your curiosity. Mm. Right? Because that book could have just stayed on the shelf. Yeah. You know, like any other yeah. books, right? I'm, there are books on 100%. my shelf that I still haven't picked up. 100%. But but there was something there, like there was a kernel, there was a desire, there was an impulse that didn't take a lot of thought or like premeditation. But just in listening to that impulse, whatever that impulse is, like literally took you on the journey, journey, like for the rest of your life. And, you know, it makes me think about just how many things come through our minds that we don't pick up on or that we don't listen to or like we don't follow. And, you know, even myself, it makes me think, you know, what was on the other side of that impulse? Mm. You know, you know, I think that's a good I've never thought about this, but I think 
one of the things that I, I credit my mom with um, tremendously is um, she never let the physical environment she was in cage in her imagination, right? And I think that for me, um, when I think about the things I was really passionate about as a kid, like, you know, mythology, like, I love mythology. I love reading about ancient civilizations. I love um, just understanding how the, why the world works the way it works. A lot of it was like, you know, whether I was sitting on the floor in an apartment in the Bronx, um, you know, I still had this imagination for all these other things, right? And um, I think even when I started fencing, you know, I literally would come back to an apartment in the Bronx, you know, with scant furniture in it, right? And I'd be doing footwork um, in my living room and the neighbors downstairs would be complaining that I'd be doing footwork in my living room and pretending and imagining in my mind that I was in Europe like the older guys were, the guys who are my age now, competing on the level I'm competing on now. And that was like my, you know, I would live my life in my head that way because um, I had to commute an hour to school from the Bronx to the Lower East Side. And I had to fill my mind with things to make it feel worth it to me as a kid. So that's always been me. That's that's wild. Like, let's double tap on that that you know notion of imagination, like an imagination despite situation. Like, what does it take? Like, what is that skill set to to go to a place within um, to soar, right? To expand. You actually to go inward to expand because what is visually in front of you is not going to like take you there. Yeah. You know, I'll be honest with you. I think it's something I'm grateful for, for my childhood. Um, but um, even now, right. Like I have to try my first Olympic medal that I won. Right. I had to try to imagine that no one had ever done that before. Right. No one had done that in 112 years. Um, so I had to kind of create a framework for myself within myself. Um, to pull through that. And I think a lot of it's just like, I spent a lot of time alone thinking as a kid. And I spent a lot of time uh, manifesting and putting things into myself and, and, and believing in myself when other people didn't. Um, and there's like a solo journey I think we all have to have sometimes to, to get to our purpose. And um, it's funny, I'm, I think I'm going through that now. Like I just got back from the games what, two and a half weeks ago. And I feel like I just have to really go inward right now um, to figure out what the next iteration is. Like, um, and I can't really see it yet, right? But I can feel that something has to change and that something has to um, shift. So um, I think it's just a skill I got really as a kid. And, you know, I went to a Quaker school growing up. So we were big on reflection and meeting for worship and um, so that's always been a part of my DNA, um, you know, just to sit, reflect, think, um, figure out how you want to move forward, process emotions, sit with them. Um, so I think that's a skill set that I've had from childhood. Um, and it's just something that I've kind of honed over time in a, a bit. It's interesting that you mentioned, you know, this Quaker school, um, your, your mentor, Peter Westbrook in doing research, I realized he goes to my church, like oh, he's a deacon at, at Abyssinian. Yeah. And I, you know, I always no. saw him. Right. And I knew that he was like some kind of athlete, but I was, but I've been doing all this research right on Peter Westbrook and I did not, I did not 
make the connection. But anyway, um, I, I say all that to say, like, what is your spiritual practice? Like, what spiritual tradition, like, did you grow up in? And then, like, what's your spiritual practice if you have one? Yeah. So, I mean, I grew up, um, my mother is Episcopalian. Um, so it's very, like, church, um, you know, and I, <laughs> I was always the one who was like, oh, do we have to go or falling asleep in church or something like that. Um, and then, you know, I, uh, I attended a Quaker school for a number of years, um, which is pretty much it's Christianity without God. Um, they see the inner light in people as God versus like a physical God. Right. And there's no, it's not really scripture. It's more about living life simply and being a good person. Um, you know, so very, um, democratized authority. We called our teachers by their first name. Like it was a very kind of very liberal school. Um, so left there and went to a Catholic school for a couple of years, right. Which is the complete opposite. So I have all of these different frameworks, right. Um, and I think for me now, I just try my best to, um, ooh, the cicadas, I think, but, um, I try my best now to, um, just be in tune with myself to be spiritually, um, you know, just to be like a good person. Right. And to re really honor how I feel with things, but to, to also try to, um, take time to understand other people's feelings and emotions and, and just to live, like, I try to live like the best person I can. And I think that's like, I, I know I have to be in tune with myself to do that, but I try to show up as my best self. And through that, I feel like I'm able to impact and do the things I need to do. Uh, amazing. Okay, so let's 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 come back just a little bit. So you're 11. You start fencing. Yes. Really, because you like the outfits. <laughs> I mean, literally, yeah. Literally. <laughs> which I which I love. But you walk into this class. You put a saber in your hand. And was there like a like was there a magical moment that took place? Like what happens when you actually get in this space in this room? Like yeah. what are you met with? So I can tell you, like, you walk into the fencing gym, and um, so the, the first time we came in, um, and I know this man now, right? But this guy sees my mother and I, and he says, okay, first question is, do you have deep pockets? Because fencing is like a very Russian sport. Do you have deep pockets? And my mom's like, uh, no, what? You know, like, and granted, like, I always have to keep this stuff in mind, but, you know, my mother had me very young, so... Frankly, like she was younger than I am now with two children and taking them to a fencing class to try to like, you know, inspire her kids to do something else. Right. Or something more. So we come back the next Saturday. And so the first time I see I'm like, OK, they're like, it's just like it's not that populated. It's they're like all white kids there. I'm like, OK, I come back the next Saturday at 9 a.m. And it's all kids like me. So it's Peter's program. Peter Westbrook's program was targeted towards kids in the inner city. So it was kids from the Bronx, Brooklyn, Queens, Harlem, um, fencing. So, you know, Air Force One's out, oversized white tees, long shorts, the, the silkies on. And it was just, you know, dudes trying to holler at shorties. Like, it was really, like that was the environment. And um, it was really, really dope and really fun. And it's like, it's recreational fencing. So everyone's putting their own little twists on things, you know. And it, it, it was really, really fun. Um there are three different weapons. There's foil, saber, and epee. So foil is generally the weapon you start in. That's the weapon you see in the parent trap. Saber, the one I specialize in now, is more of like the Zorro slashing, right? So Peter, the person who started the program, was a saber fencer. So naturally, he took all of the bigger guys, more talented guys, the saber. And I was a really, really small 11-year-old. 
you know, who's like a mama's boy. Like, so I remember I came to Peter when I was 12 and I said, hey, I really want to bend Saber. He's like, come on, man. He said, Saber, you're going to get hit hard. I'm like, okay. He'll never admit this, but he hit me with a fencing glove three times. He's like, you're going to get hit like that. I was like, it's okay. But it hurt. But I was like, it's okay. So I'm at his house. Or I'm at, um, I take, pick up a Saber. I'm just like moving my feet in a way. And everyone's like, whoa, he's pretty fast. And then that was like kind of when people were like, okay, we can like look at this guy. And I think maybe one or two months later, I started working with coaches. And then two months after that, probably the Olympic coach. Um, so I started with the Olympic coach when I was 12. Yeah. Whoa. Okay. Yeah. So this was really fast. Yes, yes. Yes. So I, um, you know, part of the program is it's identifying Olympic talent and pairing them with the right coaches early. So I was one of the kids that was um, paired up with Yuri Gelman, who coached from 2000 Olympic team, 2004, 2008, 2012, 2016, we won a medal. He was just in 2020 with us as well. So, um, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> Whoa, sorry. That took me out. Okay. So what did they see like at 11, at 12 that they're like, Oh, this kid could go to the Olympics. Yeah. You know, I don't know. So I you know, I don't know from when I see now, right. You can see someone who has, first you have to be the right age, right. You have to be young enough. Right. And then because it's a lot of work over time, but then it's also just like the speed, the agility, the focus. Right. And you can see when people are really enjoying the sport. Um, and I had all of that, like, you know, as a kid, I always was, I wasn't always the best fencer, but I've always loved this sport, you know? Um, and I think the cool thing is people ask me sometimes like, Hey, are there any black fencers? And I'm like, you have to understand that I was like, there are three friends I had who were supposed to be where I am now today. Right. Um, and we all traveled to Europe together from when we were 16. Like, um, and I mean, this is all stuff that like sounds crazy, but like, you know, it literally, like, my life as a teenager was me leaving the Bronx, going to school in the Lower East Side, going to practice in, the, in Chelsea, right, taking an hour trip home, and then flying to Europe Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday with my friends back in school on Monday. Like, you were going to class, you know, in the Lower East Side, you'd have an hour's practice, and then you went to Europe on the weekend? Yeah, so fencing is a super European sport. Um, so most of our competitions from under 16 on like my first international trip was when I was 16. And again, our parents never traveled with us, right? It was just you and your close friends. Um, so I went to, you know, my first traveling, you know, I think October I was in Poland, November I was in Germany and Italy for a week straight missing school to compete. Um, you know, December I was in Hungary, <laughs> you know, and um, you're literally traveling like this um since you're 16 around the world right um and i'm a kid in the bronx right who's coming back to the bronx and then going to school with you know elite kids in the upper east side and or on the lower east side and then fencing with like the one percent and then going back to the bronx and then going to europe and meeting a bunch of kids in europe um there's no way you can't see more and see more for yourself so again just grateful for all of the the situations and spaces i've been allowed to be in um, by my talent and um, curiosity, I mean, also just like, it, yeah, it, I mean, all of those things kind of form this bigger identity. So I'm grateful, yes. But then, like, how how were you then able to relate to, like, your neighbors, right? Like, you, yeah. are, you are existing in probably three or four worlds as a teenager, but you're, you know, 
there's still so-and-so up the block. Like you still have neighborhood friends. How are you navigating that? Like, how are you negotiating that? Yeah. You know, I, I almost feel like, um, I'll be honest with you. I didn't have the ability to do that for a long time. Right. Um, and it was hard for me as a kid to fit in somewhere. And really my fencing friends, the three or four, there were three or four of us who were black, who traveled the world in that capacity together. And then, you know, eventually you meet like a black French friend who's in the same, you know, like, and those are some of my closest friends to this day. But um, it really wasn't easy to navigate that as a kid. And um, yeah, it, it took a lot. Like you kind of take people a lot of the times and put us into talented people and put us into spaces we aren't represented in. And at that time, I'm from a Caribbean family. So, you know, assimilation is huge in Caribbean families. So um, I think it's taken me a lot of unlearning over time, right? Um, and through me being successful and wanting to kind of free my own mind and imagine my own future, right? And my own way of being, um, that's allowed me in adulthood to relate to people very easily. But I think as a child, that was definitely something I struggled with. And, and did you feel like, you know, there's, there's a level of aggression also, right? In fencing and I was listening to one interview and you were talking about like when you step onto like the strip, you like you see through your opponent and you're like, I'm going to destroy you. Like I'm going to kill you. <laughs> like w how has fencing or sports um, help you um, or allowed you to channel maybe some darker parts of yourself or emotions that were tough? to to deal with <laughs> that's a good question that's the first person that's ever asked me that but um first of all i'll say i've never been in a physical fight in my life right and i think a large part of that is because fencing allows me i fight every day i fought every day since i was 11 right and um fencing allows me to take that part of myself and pour it into that and i think there's also that extreme focus and that ocd piece of you that's like with sports, you have the opportunity to do that and do it in a productive way. Um, whereas in life, like that intensity can be really off-putting for people, right? So um, I can say like, because I started specializing in individual sports so young, my ability to focus on things is, is really, really deep, right? And um, I think the dark side of it sometimes is because it's an individual sport, it's all you and you really have to watch the the ups and downs, like you can go really, really low or really, really high. You know, it's really indicative of your personality and where you are in life. But um, one of the, the things that I think is like, you know, when you're doing something for yourself, you have to really, really, really know yourself really, really well and know who's around you. So something that I kind of figured out over time was just even in terms of seeking validation from people, right? Um, mm, that you can't uh really take positive validation from people and not take the negative when they give it to you too. Like it's very, very hard to, to do that. You know, if you're looking at, if you're looking at these coaches or certain people telling you you have to do it this way and they're praising you so much and you get so high off of that and in love with that when they're saying you're not doing it, it's really, really hard as well. So, I mean, I think that this sport has in a way forced me to know myself so well in and out because people will come to you with all kinds of solutions and concoctions and um, you need to do this and you need to do this, especially being black in this sport. People do that all the time um, and with my level of success in it. So I just try my best 
um, to stay grounded in who I am, right? And um, to kind of give myself time and space to process information. I also think you should realize too, culturally, um, we're used to dealing with American mentality. Like this sport is very Eastern European. Do what I say and don't ask questions. Um, those are most of the people coaching here. Hungarians, Russians, Ukrainians. It's very much do what I say. Um, and there have been tons of interesting intercultural conversations between black mothers and these European male coaches who feel like, <laughs> you, know, you already know, who feel like, no, your kid needs to do this. And it's like, nah, that's not what we're doing. So, <laughs> you, 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 you know, as a... As an adult, even, I kind of run into that as well. Um, and that's always something interesting to balance as well. To, to circle back to this, this, this I'm going to just call you all the Rat Pack, like the Rat Pack group of fencers who are like jet setting around the world on the weekends. You said they were supposed to be there with you. Where are they? Yeah, um, we're all good friends still. But I think, uh-huh. um, you know, most of two, let's say two of the guys that I'm really, really close with, um, one of them is dating. Um, and it's funny, I'm on the Olympic team with his uh, brother-in-law pretty much, right? Who's his younger brother, who's seven years younger than we are. And he made the Olympic team with me. And um, Marty and I, he won't care if I use his name. Marty and I are still very close, but he has completely transitioned out of the sport. He... Um, coached a little bit, but he went through um, NCAA fencing and then tried to do it a little bit after and decided he wasn't really into it as much. And then Ross, my other really good friend growing up, um, is now coaching full time. Um, so, I mean, I think the great thing about this sport is that it gives you a skill set um, that you can use either in this sport, right, as, as a coach or outside of it, the mindset of it can help you. Um, but I think, I mean, it was just the type of thing where everyone kind of had different priorities as we got a little bit older and I stayed in the city so I could stay with my coach and keep practicing the way I was practicing before. And, um, some, you know, some guys went to schools further away, which is harder to get better. Um, other people, uh, just kind of didn't want to go to school at all. So it's just different. It's different life. It's life, right? It's the same thing. We always say life, uh, fencing is condensed life with higher pressure and it just, you have to make quick reactions faster, but yeah. That's, you know, that's interesting. What is it, what does it require? That's, that's actually not the question I want to ask. What does it feel like to start somewhere with a group of individuals and begin to move past them? And, and I don't mean that in any kind of value judgment, but I think, you know, when people talk about success, when people talk about grinding and hustling, um, when they talk about like what elite performance means, you know, rarely do we speak about who has to be left behind or like who doesn't make it, you know, in pertain as it pertains to, you know, your interpersonal relationships and family members as well. Yeah, you know, um, it's so funny you say that. Um, I was I had a conversation with one of my former teammates the other day, um, and she, in a lot of ways, is five times better at fencing than I ever was, right? But I, um, I've always done very well at championships, right? And um, and that's just a difference, right? Um, 
but we are super close. We, she and I have traveled the world together again since we were, since she, she's three years younger than I am, so 13 and 16, and gone everywhere together. You know, all of our European friends, like, are you guys boyfriend and girlfriend? Like, the, our whole lives. She lives in, she's from Brooklyn. Um, so one of the conversations we had was just, was just like, there are so many people we grew up with who knew us. Like, you know, in fencing, you have friends from when you're 11, 12 years old, right? It's, that's the kind of the different thing. Um, but there's so many people that know you at some point in your journey. And uh-huh. that doesn't mean they're necessarily going to be there at the end of the journey. So I kind of described it to her, like, if there's a documentary, right? There are going to be some people who have, like, little scenes in it that think they may have the whole, they may know the whole story, but they really just have a little tiny scene in it. And um, it's a weird kind of feeling to have because um, with all the different spaces I've been into, with all of um, the different teammates I've had, I'm on national teams and Olympic teams with people I never thought I'd be on teams with. I thought my friends would be here with me forever. Seriously, I thought my friends would be here with me forever. And I'm at the point now where I'm on teams with people 12 years younger than me. <laughs> you know, um, I have made teams, Olympic teams with people 12 years older than me. You know, so it's just the type of thing where um, I have to constantly rewire things and say, no, D, you're doing this for you. Because sometimes when your friends aren't there with you, it's not as fun. And it's a huge adjustment period. And then you might even become friends with people who weren't your friend, but they're your age. And then those people leave, you know. So um, it definitely is a really, really hard journey to be on. I can't imagine like a LeBron, right? It's a really hard journey to be on when you're like, you're so good at something and you have the longevity in it and you start to see people you were so close to not be involved in it anymore. Um, and they can, you can still speak to them about it and, and, and share things about it, but it's different than when someone's in the, the weeds with you and you know, you're shoulder to shoulder and you're, you're trying to accomplish something. So um, I am a cancer, you know, and I don't like leaving anyone behind. I love having everyone with me. And, and I, yes, and I'm grateful that I have five, six, seven friends from really, really early childhood who um, I can still share things with, but they might, they're not in this sport anymore, but I can still, they can still understand me and motivate me and, and give me love when I'm down and stuff like that. But I will say that's one of the hardest things, like um, just knowing that things aren't permanent. You know, I, I still kind of remember when I was five, um, um, no, 10, 10. And we're graduating from elementary school. And I'm sitting down with five of like my closest friends at the time. And one of them's like, yo, we're all about to go to the school together. We're about to be friends forever, da, 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 right? And I'm like, yeah, you know, we're kids. So we're already cursing and stuff like that. You know, we're 10, right? Kids in the Bronx. And two weeks later, my mom's like, no, you got accepted to this private school downtown. Like, you're not going to go to the public school around the corner that everyone gets in trouble at. You're going to go to this school an hour away. And I remember I was looking at her like, why? Like, why do I have to do that? Like, I don't want to do that. And um, I remember I was really sad. That, that was, you know, it was sad. And um, in a way, like, you know, I, I've changed environments so many times, like changed schools, you know, changed, you know, I told you Quaker school to Catholic school, that I'm like pretty versatile in that. I'm a kind of, I can handle that, but it's still kind of hard um, to, it's hard. It's not easy. Um, it's what I would say. It's, I like being comfortable. And a lot of times you have to rechange, you have to change that and form new relationships and it's tough. Okay. So 
I want to I want to just pivot to like the sport of fencing period because you know it's not a sport I'm definitely familiar with. It's definitely not a sport that many people are familiar with. So like what is fencing? Like you mentioned a little bit earlier about like three types of weapons, right? There's like a foil and a saber and then like a third thing, but like what is what is this sport? And why and also why is it like prohibitively been sorry, let me rephrase that question. You know, what like what is this sport? And why has it been so prohibitive towards people of color? Yeah, great. Um, so fencing, there are three weapons, but we're going to start before that. It's combat. It's art. It's movement. It's dancing. It's a rhythm, right? Um, and it's chess, right? So if you imagine like a boxing, mixing a boxing, a chess, and art, right? Because fencing is still very technical and um, you know, the movements, classical fencing is really still a thing. Now people break outside of that and do whatever they want, but the people who really practice classical fencing, a good on guard position, good blade work, good footwork is something that everyone loves to watch. Um, so we have three weapons. We have foil, saber, and epee. Um, foil is the beginning weapon. You saw that in the parent trap, I think, but um, the front and the back of the target and you can only poke. Epe, the entire body to target, and you can only poke as well. And Saber, the one I do, everywhere from the waist up is target, and you can slash. So you can hit with any part of the blade. Um, I chose Saber because it's the most aggressive, it's the most virtuoso, it's like the very alpha weapon of the sport. Um, and I think that, you know, when you talk about it being prohibitive, cost-wise, it is extraordinarily expensive. And um, a lot of that was created by the fact that the original fencing coaches here like fencing was in the States already, but it was very um, elitist. Fencing coaches from Eastern Europe, right? From the Soviet Union, really, where there was no money in the sport at all, came over and saw there was a market and started to like kind of build out an infrastructure for it to make it very, very expensive. Um, so I would say the only access points for fencing prior to, you know, the Soviet Union collapsing were probably like the New York Athletic Club type of, type of clubs, private clubs, private membership clubs. Um, it then shifted to become more of a recreational sport slash somewhat competitive sport. Um, but the price is super prohibitive and it's just like the access points aren't in our community, unfortunately. Um, Peter's done an amazing job of creating an access point in the tri-state area. Um, but generally speaking, um, you know, it's not, it's not something that you can get um, access to if you're not in a city like New York City or L.A., um, and then affording it's a whole other piece. Um, so I would say it's mainly that. Um, and uh, I would say the, the cool thing about fencing is there are way more fences of color. Like half of our team, a quarter of our team is probably black and half of our team is of color. Um, and I think that's not something that um, people are aware of. But, um, you know, I think the cool thing is that I know so many living legends that are black in this sport from around the world because the French team is actually at least more than a fourth black as well from the French Caribbean. So um, there are many of us in the sport um, and we happen to be very good at it, but it's just not shown as much. And, and that's actually really interesting to think about, you know, the black Caribbean um, history of fencing, right? Because there was also a really super famous fencer in the 1700s who was from Guadeloupe. Yeah. Chevalier uh, St. George who also was like a virtuoso musician. 
Yes. Yes. Who's actually mostly known for that. Exactly. But he was like the most kick-ass fencer. <laughs> Wait, so how, when did you learn about him? So we, I learned about him because a lot of my good friends are Guadalupian. And um, there is a, an immense pride that Guadalupian fencers have in their history of kind of being better, like being on the French team and, and winning Olympic medals. Um, so that actually started with him. And, um, mm. you know, they're just all these stories about, you know, him going between like piano and then getting up and dueling someone. And then like, there are all of these incredible stories. Um, and I learned about him actually through an American person who was just kind of breaking down to me um, that he was doing a play and he wanted some fencing direction. And he kind of told me to look into this person. I was like, wow. And we just I started speaking to my friends in the French Caribbean about it. And they're like, yeah, this dude was legit. Um, but yeah, so there's a, there's a huge, huge, huge history. And, you know, there are, there are black fencers in the German team. There's a black fencer in the Ukrainian team. You know, there are African fencers. There's fencing in, in Congo, Senegal, um, you know, Mali. So like we, we interact and, um, it's always love. Um, but it's, yeah, it's always love. It's always love. That's, that's really beautiful. And so like, what does... You know, you're an elite athlete. Like, what does that mean? Like, I mean, I have a clue, but like, do like the elite athletes hang out with the regular athletes? Like, are, can y'all be cool? Or you're like, no, y'all are doing it for entertainment and we're up here like doing it. Like, what what does that mean to be an elite athlete? You know, so it, it depends on sport, on your sport, right? But with fencing, I can say most of the good fencers I know wake up in the morning, right? You think about fencing, you go to sleep, you think about fencing, um, and you, you fence in the middle, right? And you're either recovering for, for fencing practice at some point during the day or watching video or thinking about it. And I think the, the sign you can tell that someone's really, really in this is like, we always say like, you know you caught the fencing bug when you're walking down the street or you're just kind of sitting down and you just start doing the movements, right? Um, so as an elite athlete, I just say it's like, you know, I'm locked in on my craft and it's about craftsmanship. Um, I have a lot of friends who are artists, right? And it's the same thing for them. They have to lock in on their craft. Um, and you're responsible for the 10,000 hours on your own. Um, uh-huh. I think that's kind of like where I equate elite, athlete, elite athletics. And, you know, I think you can be a team sport player. You can be a professional athlete and do that. But I just think it's just about being focusing on your craft. There, that is funny you say that, though, because a lot of my track and field friends do make a joke about um, people saying, yeah, I ran track. And they're like, when? Oh, in high school. And they're like, OK, that's not what we're talking about now. But um, yeah, yeah, we have that running joke. People do that all the time. Like, yeah, I fence all the time. I was really, really good. I did the Junior Olympics. And you're like, OK, it's not the same. But, you know, with being like an elite athlete you know, and you mentioned focus, like, I believe that outside of just natural talent is also a mental shift, right? Like outside of the physical, there is a mental. And so for you, like who did you have to become in order to be an Olympian, right? Like, because there are people who play, there are people who are good, there are people who are very good. But who did you have to become, in order to be an Olympian? <laughs> you know, 
I will say it's tough as well. Sometimes it's hard to separate who you have to become from like who you are, right? Like I would say like generally I'll start with who I am. Like I'm goofy. I'm like, I like to have fun with my friends. I like to make, like I'm a goofball. <laughs> um, and then when you're, you're in your sport and you have to lock in for it, right? And you have to train for it. I become stoic, right? I become, like my mind is shut off. I'm completely locked in. Like sometimes to focus, to practice focusing, I'll just close my eyes and imagine that I'm like shooting a laser between like a tiny, tiny ball, right? Over and over and over and over and over again in my head, right? And I think things like that, you know, Peter and I speak about this a lot, but it's, it's very, very easy to become the person with the mask on because you're constantly, you're constantly um, in a situation where you're kind of fighting and, and shielding yourself from things. And um, I think that that is like, it, the good thing I'm, I'm happy about now is that I'm learning to kind of like separate the two, right? I can have like my personal life where I can like be way more relaxed and chill and not talk about fencing. And then I can have like my fencing life where I'm super revved up and into it. But like the person you have to become is someone who's hyper obsessed with the sport, um, hyper obsessed with um, detail, obsessed with how you feel really, like how you feel is king. <laughs> um, for you to do this, how you feel is king. Like, hey, I, I, you know, you have to change practices around when other people might not, it might, it might not be convenient for other people, but it's convenient for you. This is what I want to do. And you guys have to go by what I want to do. Um, and it's a different, it, it's a great thing for sport and achievement, but it's not necessarily the best thing to be a person in life. It's just, I think sometimes to do an individual sport, you have to be greedy and you have to be selfish. Um, and you have to be selfish about your own success sometimes. And I think that is something, you can balance it. You balance it over time. But as a youth, like it was strictly, you're just going up and you're just trying to accomplish everything. And um, once you've gotten to the point I'm at now, I can be a bit more open-minded and, and giving. But um, when you're coming up, it's really, really hard to do that. And I think that's something that you have to become to an extent um, to do sports on a high level. And that's what I mean. Like, yeah, you know, like, you know what I mean? Like, what's that? What's that? What's that pivot? Like if it, it's, you know, you know, I, and I think that this uh, applies outside of sport. This is, you know, someone who is trying to move from the mailroom to the boardroom. Right there. There has to be a shift in yeah. mentality and values, you know, in order to become this other version of yourself. That's there. It's there. But there has to be, you know, a shift that that takes place. You know, there has to. Yeah, be and I think yeah. that's like you said, I think that's the ugly part. Right. Sometimes. Right. Where you have to dive so deep into yourself um, and pull so much out of yourself that sometimes like, you know, I, 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 I think sometimes even like. And I've thought about this a lot. I wonder if you have, too, but like the things that fuels pe fuel people's will to be successful. Right. Mm -hmm. Like. I'm sure for me, part of that is me not growing up with my dad and like me having that, ah, I want to do more, I want to do more. And um, obviously that's not the most <laughs> positive thing, right? It's not the most positive thing, but, um, you know, we all kind of channel like different parts of ourselves in different ways to get more out of ourselves. And um, I think that's like something that I've really had to think about a lot. Um, and frankly, some of my friends 
that I mentioned to you earlier, they're like, yo, our parents would literally tell us like whatever he has in him fueling him is what you guys have to have. Because you guys don't see it, but we can see it from the outside. This dude's coming different. He's coming with a different energy. Um, and um, yeah, so yeah, it's interesting. <laughs> and you, you know, you, you speak so much about just like this, this kind of, internal dive that has to take place over and over again and you know I know you know recently like you know athletes like Simone Biles and like Naomi Osaka have really kind of brought like mental health to the fore of you know elite sportsmanship which I think on one hand I think it's really interesting that it's really black women who have taken uh, not only the brunt, but I've also had the courage to bring it up when I'm sure it's something that many athletes go through. So, you know, for you, what, what, like, how does that speak to you? What, what mentally should we, like, you know, the lay on elite athletes really understand about what you all are going through mentally and what it means to, you know, show up time and again at that level? Yeah, I mean, thank you for saying that. So number one, um, I you're completely spot on that it, it is so interesting that it is black women leading that charge. Um, a conversation that several of us in different sports had was like, how would that be perceived if black men opened up and said this? And society, obviously we have our societal kind of conditioning where we have to be, you know, stoic and tougher, but how would it be perceived if like, one of us had, and I think they were right. I loved it. I'm like, yes, because it's it's really lonely and it's really, it's lonely, it's hurtful, it's the criticism, it's a lot of pressure. Um, but it, I would really love to see a space where we as black men can can speak about openly as that, about that as well. Um, I think that, you know, there's a tremendous amount, there's a difference, right? Because everyone wants to win. We all want to win. We're, we're elite performers, we want to win. Um, I think sometimes fans, supporters don't understand how much goes into this, right? Like I just personally didn't do as well as the Olympics as I wanted to, right? And the first thing in my head is like, that's five years of work that I can't get back, right? Cause I'm on a time frame. Like if you're a photographer, you can shoot for the rest of your life as long as you have hands. I'm on a time frame with how much I can accomplish with this. And, um, that was the first thing in my head. And my, I'm like, okay, I didn't waste time. Get locked that out, right? But I'm like, I didn't show up for myself. It was the hardest thing that I had to handle, right? And I'm like, it's not how other people feel about it. Because you've to do what you have to to do what we do, you have to be over that part already, right? Um, it's about how you feel about how you showed up for yourself. And that that's mm. the toughest part. Um, and that was the toughest thing for me to get over. Like people are like, oh my God, no, don't worry, you're still a champion. I'm like it's not about what you're telling me. It's about what I feel about myself, you know? And um, I think sometimes, <laughs> I've had a lot of conversations about this after the games, um, sometimes people rush to try to understand, but it's something they can't understand. Wow. You know, it's something you can't understand because it's, it's so much, and I, it's, not, it's not a, hey, don't write nice messages and things like that. Like that's really appreciated, but... It's so much effort. It's so much willpower. It's so much you don't not believing in yourself and rebounding and picking yourself back up. You know, um, it's so much you putting all of it in 
with no um, guarantee, right? Mm. And um, of course, there's a huge payoff when you do well, but when you don't do well, you're kind of stuck alone and you have to sit and ponder and think, right? And rebuild, slowly rebuild yourself, right? Um, Me having this conversation with you is like a rebuilding moment for me. (laughs) No, for real, for real, I'm serious. Um, So yeah, it's a lot and a lot of us are going through it right now, just rebuilding. And you know, I'm telling you for real, like you don't realize like you're around so many hyper achievers. I had friends that didn't make the team that were like guarantees to make it. And I was like, I was like, wait, what? Huh? And then I have friends who were number one in the world and didn't medal. How that felt for them, you know? I medaled the last one in the medal here. It's just a lot of pressure. And you add the financial pressure of it, right? Um, it's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. But, you know, I personally love seeing how versatile I can be, how strong I can be in the face of adversity, how much I can pick myself back up when things don't go well, my stick to and just challenging myself in that way. I personally love that part of it. Um, Jesse Owens has a quote at the Olympic Training Center where he says, the real battles aren't the ones for gold and silver medals, it's the ones for the battles within yourself. Like that's where the real battles are, you know? So I think that's something that I've always taken with, taken to and ran with. Like, you know, what are the things that I need to address in myself to be stronger? Because fencing is like a great part of my life and it's a beautiful part of my life. But, you know, my second act, I want to be even bigger and grander, right? So um, it's a lot of me just thinking, okay, what can I do to be better as a person every day? And how can I get more for myself? And how can I, like, overcome these roadblocks I'm coming into? And fencing is kind of like a vehicle for me to see those things. Yeah, and you you mentioned a little bit about, like, you know, the fi- the finances, you know, around not only, you know, being an athlete, but, like, what happens when you win and versus like what happens when you lose. Um, and I've heard you mention also earlier that the money ain't what people think it is. So t- tell us a little bit about how you have navigated this, you know, financially and the ways in which, you know, you 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 set yourself up in order to like succeed past, you know, successes, you know, and losses. Yeah, so again, I'm grateful, right? my upbringing has been super wide. Um, so, you know, one of the things my mom told me off the rip was like, you can't make a career as a fencer and make sure you have other things go- going for you, right? And I was like, no, but I can dream and da da da. And she's like, no. Um, so I am in a blessed position where I can make a living off of fencing, right? Um, I'm in a, I have sponsors that I work with, I have brands I partner with. Um, I'm slightly entrepreneurial in some ways. Um, so I'm in a blessed position. The reality is most people are working two jobs to pay for training um, and for competition expenses and barely breaking even in the hopes of winning an Olympic medal and getting, you know, in hopes of winning an Olympic medal and the payout for Olympic medals, for a gold medal is $37,000. And before Barack Obama, that was taxed, right? So most people are doing this strictly off the passion, the love, this is what I want to do. This is how I want to push myself. Um, really. Okay. And then obviously there are, it's the hopes of an endorsement deal. Right. <laughs> um, but there are only so many of those that go around. Right. And um, it, it definitely, this, this space is, the Olympic space is not, it's not a professional team. Right. The, the wages you're receiving for your performances are not 
Um, they're not something you can live off of. <laughs> um, so it really, I mean, if you think about probably what the Olympics were historically in the U.S., it was probably something that wealthier people did, right? Before they transitioned into the private sector and did da 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 whatever, right? That was probably more akin to what it was. Um, now, um, specifically, like I always, I was with one of the track athletes last night. I always say like. The Olympics get blacker when the track field get track team gets there. Like I love the track team, and I'm like, like <laughs> let's do this. <laughs> you know, like those are like some of my closest. The people I look at the closest and I follow the closest are like the track athletes or like the black wrestler or Clarissa Shields. Like we came up together, um, but you know, there's like this this family type thing. But everyone's on their own. Like you know, we're all together for Team USA, but like it's the most American thing. Like you're together and then you go back home and you have your own thing to deal with. Everyone has their own uh -huh. struggle to deal with. Uh -huh. And, um, I, yeah, I think it's, it's definitely not financially what people think it is. Maybe if you're Michael Phelps, it is that, but for most people, it's not that at all. And I'm just grateful that, um, I can kind of create a life for myself here, um, where I'm able to do the things I want to do. And, um, I've built out a framework that allows me to kind of, maneuver in a way where I can still like look towards the future and be solid. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I love how you, how you mentioned, um, you know, the track team, which makes me think about, you know, Shakari Richardson, who, you know, just ran and didn't do as well as people, you know, had hoped. And, you know, in a way my heart goes out because, you know, I just know how this culture is and they just, they love to push you high just to like laugh at you when you fall. 100%. And that like, that, I just, it just, you know, hurts my spirit. But I also know that, you know, to be in this game, you've had many more failures than you've had successes, you know? And so how do you frame failure and like, how do you forgive yourself afterwards yeah so uh there are two sides right i'll give you both sides the first side is like this is the end of the world <laughs> <laughs> that's the first side of failure for me it's like this is the end of the world i'm embarrassed i'm sad oh my god uh, i can't do this and then i have to sit back and think and i'm like okay let's think about your career three olympics uh first person 112 years to win an olympic medal First person winning a world championship medal, junior world championship medal, cadet world championship medal, NCAA champion, uh, national champion, right? And I have to go through these things and I'm like, okay, like obviously you've accomplished, your resume is set, right? And you can make as many more, you can make more Olympic teams, you can make, win more world championship medals, but like you have to be okay with who you are, right? And I think I've had to, I learned that in the last couple of years because before every time I lost, it'd be like the most devastating. I'm like ripping everything up. I'm like, no, coaches, we have to change this. We have to everything will go to everything's gone. We're starting all over from scratch. And um I think now I've just learned that failure is a part of my process, right? Before a lot of my biggest jumps, you know, I've failed tremendously. Like, you know, um Olympic game and I I have to put this in like another sport terms for you, but like you know, right before the Olympic Games, I probably went through like, let's say an NBA season is 82 games. Call it like a 15 game losing streak going into the playoffs. Right? Uh. And everyone was like, this dude's about to get waxed. Olympic medal, right? Um, 
before World Championships went through like another 10 games losing streak. And I'm not talking, I'm talking about the Golden State Warriors losing 15 straight. You know what I mean? Like, like that type of thing. So, um, yeah, I've gone on losing streaks like that for extended periods of time. Um, so much so that people are just like, damn, like, this is embarrassing. And, you know, the same type of talk starts and stuff like that. And you just have to pull from within yourself. You pull from within yourself again. So um, I think I've always, I think of losing as a stepping stone. And I think a lot of times losing is important for me specifically because it takes pressure off. And I can just go back ah. to rebuilding and craftsmanship and no expectations and having fun again. Um, and I think that's something that I've learned over time that that's a really important part of my process. Mm, it's interesting. It's interesting. I love the way that you frame that. It almost it almost sounds like when we, you know, it's when we're not hitting that we should start to get excited. Yeah. Yeah. Because we know that we're actually being set up for something bigger to like pop the fuck off, right? But there is this constant there ha- it has to be that dip, right? Because there has to be a dip because yeah. even if yeah. you think about the most successful stocks, there's always a dip. There's always yeah. a dip. And sometimes it's a really dramatic dip, right? Yeah. Um, it's like the goal is to get better over time. It's not to be perfect all the time. And I, that's something I had to learn because you're static if you're perfect all the time. You're not doing anything. Um, so it's definitely like that understanding that there's always, there are always going to be more down moments. And I lose way more than I win. I, like, I named like my biggest wins, but I've lost way more, right? Um, but people have to remember the wins because that's like the things that, those things that matter, you know? You know, you remember that Kobe Bryant won five NBA championships. You don't remember the ones he lost, you know? And I think that's like the most, he played 20 something seasons. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, it's not like, <laughs> you know, it's not like he won every year. So um, I think you, you mentioned something earlier. You said elite sports versus professional sports. And I think, uh, or let's say professional sports versus Olympic sports. I've actually started looking at professional sports and the way athletes are writing their own narratives in those sports. Hmm. You don't have to win an NBA championship to be an all-time great for some of these guys. And I've started looking at things like that and understanding more that like, and again, what you're seeing in those spaces is black athletes taking control of their own narratives, right? And saying, I'm great no matter what, like you, this white organization has created these frameworks for what great is. And I'm great no matter what because of the situations that I've come out of and who I am as a man or as a person. So I've started looking at that in Olympic sports too. Like it's not, you know, these three medals they give out every four years are not what dictate how great someone is at whatever they do. It's great to get them. And I'm blessed. I'm grateful that I have one. But um, that's not the be-all, end-all. Yeah, what, what, what is the be-all, end-all? I think everyone has to come up with that for themselves. But for me... It's that I'm leaving this sport where more kids can have access to it, right? Um, the community of black fencers that the young guys that compete specifically with me, right? I want to make sure that they leave this in a space where they're supported and they can achieve in it, right? And that I can be a source for, resource for them. I think that I definitely want to win more medals. I won't even front on that, right? That's definitely something. Um, but also that I leave a better person, right? And if I can do those four things, I'm happy. That's like the most important thing for me. How do you balance ambition and service? Mm, so you're um, the deacon at your church, <laughs> Mr. Westbrook, um, preaches that so much. 
even their uh, time, like that's his, you know, he, six Olympic teams. I'm not sure if you have his resume, but six Olympic teams, 13 national championships, and starts a program for inner city kids, right? Um, and has had Olympians in every Olympic since 2000. He competed in 96, so he's had Olympians in every Olympics since. And um, a big part of that program is you come in as a child and you're mentored by Olympians. You grow into an Olympian and you're still mentoring children. So it's a cyclical organization that kind of keeps watering itself. And beyond that, like me having a, our relationship is super, super tight. So even when I think sometimes of being selfless, he's like, you're being selfish. And I'm like, what? <laughs> I'm looking at him like, what? You're not seeing all these things I'm doing? And he's like, you're still being selfish. And um, I think that's his particular skill, you know. Even he, he can say things to you that could be so hurtful, but he says them with such love, right? And um, I got back from the Olympics. He's like, Daryl, your worst dream came true. And I was like, oh, here he goes. I'm like, here he goes. He's like, you lost in the first round. You were winning 10 to 3. You lost in the first round, but you're still alive. <laughs> and I'm like, you're right. I'm like, you're right. And I start laughing. I'm like, you're right. He's like, yo, isn't that a beautiful thing? He said, now you could really, you could really go do your own thing. And we had a whole conversation about how, you know, I'd realized certain things and he'd realized certain things. But he said, you have to go through the storm. You have to weather the storm. You can, you can hear everything you want to hear before you go through it. But you have to physically go through it to feel that um. pain and that hurt to come back stronger and rebuild stronger, right? And rebuild the right way. And he said, you know, I could have told you a million times all the things I observed, but you had to really go through this on your own to see who you are and what you're made of. And I think that's like, that, yeah, that, that's deep. So I think there's like the piece about being of service to others and also being of service to yourself, right? And not being detrimental to yourself and not breaking yourself down and not, you know, being overly critical of yourself and overly demanding and having grace for yourself. So I think, I think those two are really, really linked because for so much of my athletic career, I was super critical of myself. So I couldn't have grace for other people. I think as I'm learning to have grace for my own career, I can also, it's a symbiotic relationship. Being graceful to other people allows me to have grace for myself. Me having grace for myself allows me to have grace for other people. So, yeah. And, and, and then, and how do you balance like ambition and this, you know, singular focus of a career with like romantic relationships? Like, do they suffer? Are they even allowed? Are they even on the menu? Or is it just like, catch me when my legs are broken? Nah, you know, I definitely, um, I've had uh, serious girlfriends um, while competing. And I think it's just, um, what I've had to learn is it's just like, again, it's not, sometimes it can turn into someone just listening to fencing all the time. <laughs> like, fencing, I'm so excited about it. Um, but I think over time, last couple of years, I've definitely learned to separate and how great it is to be able to separate the two things, right? Um, so I definitely think, um, again, I, because of this sport and because of how well I know myself and how much I've traveled and, you know, the situations I've had to be in, the extreme situations, you know, um, I think I'm very, very, uh, particular on <laughs> who I try to spend time and energy with, but, um, mm. yeah. And I think energy is a big thing given, um, that the sport is so much, you have to be in tune with yourself. Right. Um, but yeah, definitely date. And um, it's definitely a balancing thing. It's funny. I have like, a, there's a video of Peter in 1984 before the Olympics. It was a press, press piece. 
and his girlfriend at the time is talking about him to the press, right? And she said, you know, he just loves fencing so much and I'm just here to support him and da da da. And it's just funny to watch because I'm like, first the time period was so different. <laughs> Dating at that time was so different. But it's funny to watch just given, um, you know, when you're currently, I'm like 31 right now. So you're, I'm, I'm transitioning out of like that 20s when you're like, oh, you have your whole life ahead of you. And I'm like, oh, like I kind of want to put roots down and like be a bit more stable and stuff like that. And I think um, when, you, when you're able to see past people's relationships who've gone through um, kind of what you're going through now, it's always interesting. <laughs> Where you just, is it funny? Because you're watching, you're like, mm, you don't even know you ain't going to make it. Well, well, it's not his wife, yeah. So, <laughs> you know, it's definitely funny, yeah. But you know, but I think that's that's interesting. Like the, I'm sure that there has to be, you know, knowing what you put yourself through. I'm sure there's a level of like perspicacity. By, by perspicacity, I mean like clear vision, but then also like an admiration for discipline, right? Like an admiration for like you know, I don't know, focus, like control, like self-control, like these are attributes that I'm sure probably end up eliminating a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. You know, the, but I'd also say too, because the world of people I'm, I'm around is, are so disciplined and so locked in and like, I really value like creativity, like people who think outside the box, um, people who are kind, like I love that stuff too. Like people who are just a bit softer in their approach to to life because sports you have to be so especially individual sports you have to be so locked in all the time um that it's nice sometimes to just be around lightness <laughs> yeah okay well i i don't want to take up too much of your time i just want to ask you a couple you know final questions before we wrap um, first have i rambled um, have i rambled or is this great no 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 you're you're perfect no this is this is great i'm excited i'm actually excited to hear the full conversation because there have been a couple of moments because of the Wi-Fi where I'm like, oh, what damn, what did he say? I, I, I have to, li I, I have to listen to it later. Um, so that's good. So I'll get to hear a whole new conversation later. Um, but kind of thinking about, you know, catching us up to 2021 fall. You said, you know, you just competed in Tokyo, um, overcame some stuff. You feel like this is a time to like regroup like this is the time to um recalibrate like what is that what does that look like for you yeah um so you have good questions man um so recalibrating is first of all i just took like first step journaling right um two i just took instagram off my phone <laughs> um because it's time to kind of like you know there's a physical world around you and then Instagram creates a whole other world where you feel like you're connected to things that aren't even around you. Um, uh. And you're caring about things that aren't around you. Um, and I, w I just want to be rooted in where I am right now. Um, I have a couple of trips lined up with friends, um, completely different circumstances, but one group of my really good group of friends in New York are going to go up to the vineyard together, right? Um, love that. Um, I'm, I am my, my, one of my friends who I've met through fencing in Europe um, lives in France and he just had, he's had two kids in the last three years that I haven't met. Um, so going to see him in Paris as well um, and spend time with some friends over there um, and then probably take a little West Coast trip and just be in nature, right? And, um, and just really be present in all those things where I am 
that's like the that's like the first start. Um, you know, I'm embarrassed to say this. You're the only one that you're first person I'm telling this to, but I already have gone back to the fencing gym. You know, and I I felt like it was normally when I don't do well, I take two months off, especially in the summer. Two months off, I don't look at fencing. I don't want to talk about fencing. But I felt like it was really important for me to just put the saber back in my hand and just like feel that again slowly and just to not hide from it, right? Hide from that disappointment, hide from that feeling. So slowly starting to do that again as well. Um, and it felt really nice. Um, and I almost laughed at myself. I'm like, a month ago, this would have been, you know, a month ago, Daryl. But um, it's that and it's just starting to build a loose framework because you don't want to be too tight, but for what the next three years look like, right? So what type of projects do I want to work on? Um, you know, slowly scheduling meetings with people that I, sh that I know um, I'd like to work with um, and just having conversations with people I really trust, right? And just, so it's a bit of like, a, it's a duality, right? You're, you're closing yourself off a little bit, but you're opening yourself up for the right people and the right, the right things, um, just so you can get the right information in and, and start to, to decipher how you want to maneuver. So that's the space ah. I'm in right now. Um, and I'll probably be in that space probably for another month and a half, two months. Yeah. What's your favorite way to procrastinate? Oh, favorite way to procrastinate? <laughs> you know, just being, surrounding myself with people. Surrounding myself with people. And running your mouth. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> just literally... Surrounding myself, and, and and that's like a thing, right? Like, if and I'm sure you have this, right? You have a certain level of success. It's not hard to be around people, mm. and for people to you're amazing, and just to have those type of conversations, um, and even if it's not that you're amazing conversation, just to have conversations, right? It's not it's not hard. Um, the harder thing is sometimes when you're like when you feel that itch, like okay, I need to kind of go inward. To say, okay, let me put a pause on all these other things and be with myself for a little bit and sit with myself. And let's figure this out slowly because you know it's a process. That's part of why we surround ourselves because we know it's a process and it's like, oh, here we have to go again. <laughs> here we go again, but it's important. So um, it's important and uh, looking forward to it. And, and, what is, and so what does this life well lived look like for you, right? Like what, like what is... Like where where are you going? Mm. Um, a life well lived for me, like my idol. So I, I you know I love um, the relationship. I love brotherhood, right? That's one thing, right? So I love the relationship Gordon Parks and Muhammad Ali had. I love the relationship Malcolm X and Muhammad Ali had. Like I just love like I geek out over things like that, right? So. I think about deepening relationships with friends and family. I think about um, achieving more in sport. I think about representing something bigger than myself, right? Um, I think about just like act two sometimes. Like I just wanna feel like when I finish fencing, that chapter closed and I'm grateful for it, but that it wasn't the highlight. That it wasn't the highlight. like. Um, I see way too many people trapped in these small little sport worlds because they can never just get over the fact that it was like a period in time. They want to yeah. extend that moment forever. So for me, um, and you talked about disappointment, part of the way, part of the way you do, part of the way you deal with disappointment is the way you deal with success, right? Like if, 
if you get so big headed when you're successful and you know, you just follow the emotions, it's impossible to deal with disappointment any differently. Like you just get distraught. So like when I succeed, I try to stay with the same people I'm with. When I'm defeated, I stay with the same people I'm with. And I, those are just skills I've learned over time. Um, so I just, you know, I think it's just, again, like diving deep in yourself, myself, and just um, pursuing my passions and being a good person, I think is where I would like to be headed. Sometimes I'm like, Daryl, get back on that line, you know, because uh-huh. you're, you're deviating a little bit. But I think those are things that um, I really, really value as a person. Like, I'm lucky. Um, I'm, I'm lucky that I was able to, and this is like the real thing that's allowed me to have this perspective for real, is that I never knew I was going to win an Olympic medal. And I won it at 26. Um, and you get something that you don't know, like that, you know, for some people, me winning an Olympic medal, which is, it's a medal, right? Literally. For some people it would be the equivalent of them becoming like a, a millionaire. Like that's like how much I wanted that for myself. Right. So um, when you achieve something like that pretty young, it changes your relationship to like wanting things like that. It changes like I just understand now. I understand that I because of the way my mind works (laughs) and the things I like to do, like I will be successful in certain things. I understand that. But I just I'm not consumed by it and I don't chase it in the same way anymore. Just given that 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 metal kind of changed my relationship to how I look at those things. Mm, how did it change your relationship to how you look at these things? I think before the medal, I, w- I would be like, okay, I want, uh, I was way more like down the line with everything. Like if you asked me this question when I was 23, I'd be like, okay, I want to, and these are all things I still want to do. I want to own my own production company. I want to have, you know, huge documentaries around the world. I'd speak in more of that type of way, Right. And I think now I just have a quiet confidence that those things will happen, given that I know how much work it put. Like I, I followed a process to get to that Olympic medal, right? So I know how that process works, number one. But I also just realized that like those things don't make you happy. Like it's the journey of those things and like everyday life that makes you happy. But like the, I, the, the whole like I'll be happy when I get it thing is not it for me anymore. And I think that's one of the big things that I, it's changed my my view towards. Yeah, it's changed my view towards. And I think, yeah, I mean, if, uh, another, I think the, the best question, um, and I sometimes think about this, is like there were so many things that I felt like for me to imagine being where I am today, I had to sacrifice as a kid. Like, if you told me when I was a kid, don't go to, like, the fencing tournament or prom, I'm going to the fencing tournament. Hey, um, you know, your graduation or a fencing tournament, I'm going to the fencing tournament. Like, hey, your sister's birthday, the fence, I'm going to the fence. Like, that's, that was literally how I grew up. And I sometimes wonder if I had to do it that way to be so good at it. I had to do it that way. If I could have just, like, kind of like, yo, let me, like, be present and enjoy these things, too. Because I have teammates that they weren't as good as I was. But <laughs> I have teammates that did that. But, <laughs> you know, I sometimes, like, damn, like, would it have been different? Would I have been as good if I had, like, still made time to do things like that growing up? You know? Yeah, I mean, I don't think you'll ever know. Um, <laughs> yeah, child, that childhood is gone. But I, you know, I will say on my side of things, you know, in a way, we're built very similar. And um, you know, there are things that I miss out on 
that I've missed out on, you know, on many occasions. Um, and even in my adult life, you know, it's interesting. I'm trying to learn how to be a better friend because I realized that so much of my youth was spent in like pursuit of this, I don't know what I was after, you know what I mean? But it, excellence was definitely it, right? Like I was just after it, like I was after it. And what I think I missed out on is so interesting. I never even really thought about it till right now. So thank you for my own therapy session. But I didn't realize that I was missing out on like really learning how to be a good friend and mm. learning like the nuances of like interpersonal relationships because I was so focused because it requires that. It also asks that of you, um, that you, you center it, that you make it um, the thing that you constantly pursue at least at, you know, at a young age. Right. And then right. you kind of ease off a little bit. I have a question. Uh, yeah, go for it. And um, <clears throat> do you feel like, Sometimes when you're pursuing excellence, right, it creates like a churn and burn in people in your life. Mm. You're just churning. And it's like people are just like, people are there with you and then they're not. And then you're like, ah, oh. and someone else is there with you and it's just churning. Yeah, you know, um, it's interesting because I've, you know, it's interesting that we're having this conversation because we're almost moving through the world very differently where you're moving intensely in one direction and I'm moving intensely in multiple directions, mm. you know? And so a lot of that fall off uh, in my life has been because I have literally changed professions as well. Wow. So the people that I, you know, that were my friends when I was an actor, you know, are not the same friends that I had when I started to move into like casting and, you know, fashion. And, and that's like the same, not the same group of friends that I'm around, like, you know, as a photographer. And so, um, so that kind of drop off happened naturally in a way. Gotcha. But what also, you know, I'm sure you maybe felt this way when you won the silver in Rio. But when I had, you know, this moment that happened last year um, with Viola Davis and Incredible. the Vogue cover. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, but I really suddenly realized how many people it took to believe in me mm -hmm. and to pour into me and to give me opportunities. Like how many people it took in order to create a moment like that, right? Like knowing that this, yes, on some way, in some way, like this was on my shoulders, but I definitely was not carrying this by myself. Like this is the success of so many people. And, and I just, how much it takes, it really takes a lot. Like people, like when they say it takes a village, like that's an understatement. Like it takes 100%. a lot of people. I'm I sure I'm, I know for a fact there are thousands of people that have touched you yeah. on your way. Right. And what that also makes me think of is then how many of us, particularly people of color, aren't looked at, aren't tapped, aren't seen. Right. Because, you know, I just finished teaching at Parsons. I had a class of 21. I could really only <laughs> I could really only give extra time to like four students. Right. At most. And so, you know, thinking about how many people also um, don't get that and knowing how much a smile, a compliment, 
you know, even even if you don't think the shit is amazing, like letting just acknowledging someone's effort that that goes somewhere like that, that that has traction. You know, yeah, I it, it's interesting. Um, I've seen like sometimes just acknowledging someone's effort, even if they're like, even like you said, you don't love what they're doing. I'm thinking like fencing wise, right? Like there might be someone who's like, hey, I, I see how hard you're working. And sometimes the crazy thing is that person will end up achieving more than someone with all the resources just because that little piece of just like, and it may not look how it should look. <laughs> it may not look how it should look. It may not be as neat or cleanly packaged, but it is interesting to see how just little moments of giving to certain people um, can lead them to greatness. And I think, uh-huh. um, I think something I'm acutely aware of because again, remember, I started in a program with all black kids. So when people are like, oh my God, it's a black fencer. I'm like, no, like if everyone was given the resources or everyone had the life circumstances to to lock in on this, like I wouldn't be the only one. <laughs> right, right, right. It's that, that, that like illusion of like you being special that people push on you all the time. But it's like, no, like there are things that I'm pretty good at that have made me, that have lined me up to be good at this, right? But... Um, there are a lot of people who are like just as good as me, if not better, if not better. Um, and I'm very, very, very aware of that. So I'm happy you said that because it's a lot of it's just about nurturing and and, and watering people to help them get where they can be. And what do you think? What do you think those things are? Uh, with me? Yeah, because you said you know you said earlier that you're um you're like I'm you know I'm not the best fencer and I and I wasn't actually the best fencer but yet here I am right and so what are those other qualities outside of you know sheer talent yeah I'm I'm, I'm I have a lot of belief in myself and I that comes from that comes from my insecurities as a kid probably and me just talking to myself all the time <laughs> so I just big myself up like, you what know, do you say? What do you say to yourself? I just be like, yo, like, I'm going, I'm, I remember I told my friends when I was a kid, like, I'm going to make an Olympic team. They're like, you're never making an Olympic team. Like, you know, I have like a lot of Michael Jordan moments like that. Like, you know, or I just remember, I'm not, I mean, if we, like, I went to all white school, the fence with all white kids. I'd literally, and I, I'd go to their houses. I see all the things they had. I had to like imagine things, like, had to imagine things like, lie to myself, like anything to make it equal footing. You know, I was going nah. to kids' apartments who had million dollar houses and I was living in a house in the Bronx, like in an apartment in the Bronx. It was just like not, you know, so I just understood at a young age that I had to just like lock in in a different way. Um, and um, that, to be honest, like that's probably where a lot of the confidence comes in. Like, um, and that belief in self, because I've seen where I started. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that helped, and I think just like my mom's just oh, my mom's like a disciplinarian, so <laughs> I think that you know just having that perspective and coming into practice. My mom's a disciplinarian. My first coach was a disciplinarian. Like it just worked for me. Um, it worked for me, and then you know they they always let me have a little bit of room to like be creative and be me. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm thing like i just 
Those three things. I had really, really good coaching, really good coaching, really good mentorship. Um, naturally, I had something I really wanted to prove, right? And I wanted to be really good at this because I wanted to prove that I could be good at it. And then on top of that, I think just like I've, I found something that worked for me creativity-wise and a way to express myself, a way to express myself. Yeah, what I'm, what I'm hearing is, you know, in order to achieve... You know, achievement is spirit work. Achievement is not about looking at like an already manifested design framework, which is our life, right? Which is the apartment we grew up in, the house we grew up in, you know, what our parents do, you know, what these people have, what we don't have, what city I'm in. Like, you know, that's like dead light essentially right like that's like old news what you see is old news in order to move past that you have to you actually have to go on a different plane right like like you have to actually move in another dimension it's it's spirit work it's 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 increasing a vibration right increasing a resonance that like what is solid becomes a gas so like you can act, so you vaporize right you can actually move through what you see like that's what's required it's funny you say that because my friends talk about this all the time they're like dude we didn't know we're all 16. Like, we didn't know. We'd all goof around at practice, the beginning of practice. It's like, what we didn't know is that you got to practice an hour earlier than us. And I did mm. my own thing. I would do my own thing. And it's spirit work again. Like, I still do that. Like, like, when I'm coming back from a tournament, I always start the first practice alone. So I can, like, do things on my own, look in the mirror, focus, lock in, stretch a little bit. It, it, it may not even be, the volume of work may not be huge, but just those moments alone right? When you're pursuing something are so important for you to put into yourself. Um, so I would go to practice and that's when I got better. That's when I started getting better. I go early, do my own thing, not tell anyone. And then um, <laughs> they come in, we joke around and then, um, you know, I'd be fenced for a couple hours, but like, that's how I started putting more into myself. Amazing. Okay. Well, before we wrap, brother, I first want to thank you again uh, for hopping on to the podcast. And I just want to acknowledge, you know, your tenacity, your focus, your level of like discipline and belief in yourself, you know, outside of what situations you found yourself in that, you know, were outside of your choosing. Um, but then also like taking that mantle and passing it on to the next generation so that you can be on a cab somewhere inspiring like the next generation and really understanding that 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 like success is not linear. Success is actually cyclical, right? Like that you rise in order to bring someone else up who will then bring someone else up, you know, and so. For that, you know, I thank you and I just acknowledge who you are and how you move in the world. So, I, so thank I appreciate you for that. You. And you're saying this more elegantly than I ever could. So I appreciate <laughs> it. <laughs> oh, you know, I'm real elegant. Um, <laughs> so my last question is, uh, what is the world, you know, given if you had everything at your behest, right? What is the world that you imagine for the future? The world I imagine for the future 
is it's creative. Um, it has care. It's like equal parts solution driven because solution driven a lot of times just feels very like to the point, but it's solution driven. And what I, part of what I mean by that is the piece where we talked about everyone needing to be watered differently. Right. And, um, right now we just pour water, whoever gets watered, waters and whoever doesn't, doesn't. And I think like just us really understanding that this is a really complex place. Life is really complex. It's not easy. It's really, really hard to live. It's really hard to live well. Right. And I think just designing solutions for that. And I think that would be like the ideal world that I would love to live in. Like just something completely open. Um, I, I challenge myself to be like that because I, I, I was conditioned in the world we're in, right? So I challenge myself to try to be more open in those ways. But um, I think that's what I would love to see. Amazing. Beautiful, beautiful, brother. Thank you all so much for tuning in. Man, this was one of my favorite conversations. And now I feel like I need to go... I don't know, work? Daryl was dropping gems left and right. What was your favorite quote? Be sure to share it with us over on Instagram at Black Imagination or on Twitter at Black Imagination, which is BLK Imagination. Send it to one friend you think would benefit from some Olympic size motivation. And we'll see you here next week. Stay curious and keep dreaming.